Good morning. Let's open our Bibles together to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. I always encourage you to bring your own Bible with you because it's great to get to know your own Bible. But if you didn't, just pull out a pew Bible and open with me to Acts chapter 5. We are spending our summer in these great stories of the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles really probably should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because we see the amazing things that God's Spirit does. So let's, let's see what happens here in chapter 5. I'll read verses 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think to do such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all those who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are also at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about these events. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. God, thank you for your presence and your power here among us. Please come be our teacher. Speak to us so we may hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is quite a story, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we've been walking through these great stories in the book of Acts, and we've seen lots of things that are exciting, right? Fire and wind, and we've seen things that are amazing. When, when the Holy Spirit shows up, people are able to speak in other languages. We see hearts being opened. We see lives being changed. We see people being healed. So many encouraging stories so far in the book of Acts. We see those, those self-righteous, legalistic religious leaders being put in their place and the underdogs getting the upper hand and we're like, yes, I love this book. It's heartwarming, isn't it? The kingdom of God is being made visible. A community is being formed and, and 
goods are being shared, people are praying, people are, are eating together and, and, and loving each other. And, and up to this point in the book of Acts, we may be reading and thinking, wow, this is what real church looks like. I mean, who, 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 has, not been, who has been part of the church for a long time hasn't heard stories like this in Acts and thought, man, I wish my church was more like that. With God showing up all over the place, people joining every day, this is great. Until we get to chapter five. (laughs) Wow. What do we do with this story? What's going on here? If we back up just a little bit to the end of chapter four, we can see that this, this idea of sharing their possessions was really taking hold. Let me just read you the end of chapter four. It says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. There was this incredible unity going on between these new believers. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. The work of the Holy Spirit when it happens in our hearts, we discover that, that possessions are less important than people. And that's what's going on here. So with great power, it says, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And it gives us an example of one of those incidents. Joseph, it says, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and we hear lots more about him in the book of Acts. He sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's where Chapter 4 leaves off, and then chapter 5 starts with Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing. But they worked a little deception into the plan. They posed as if they were giving all the money that they got from the sale to the church, to the community of believers And they wanted to get credit for giving everything from the sale, but they didn't really want to pay the the literal cost of that. They wanted to keep some of it back for themselves. They wanted the honor of being sacrificial givers, but they didn't want the sacrifice of being sacrificial givers. So their motive was not so much for God's honor and praise, but for their own praise. They were soliciting celebrity. They wanted to look good. Their concern wasn't so much to benefit their brothers and sisters, although I'm sure what they did give benefited them, but they wanted to benefit themselves too by how they looked. So Peter asks uh, Ananias, because they come in separately, is this the whole price? And Peter looks, or Ananias looks him right in the eye and says, yep, this is it. And he falls down dead. And then a few hours later, the same thing happens to his wife, Sapphira. Yep, that was the whole price. And she falls down dead. It doesn't exactly spell out in the Bible that God 
killed them. But when you think about the alternatives, there's really no other plausible explanation. I mean, they both happened to have a heart attack at that moment. It, the clear implication is that, that their deaths were because of their actions, that God killed them. They sin, and God kills them. Wow. I don't know about you, but I didn't cover this story in Sunday school when I was a kid. This is not on the top 10 uh, Bible stories to share with children or that we hear. I mean, in my 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've never preached on this before. What do we do with this story? I mean, what do we do with this? Well, we, we have some, some choices here. Some people would say that, well, this is one of those stories that's in the Bible, but it's not really God's word. It's not supposed to be regarded as scripture. One well-known American pastor recently published a book that proposed that we divide scripture into three buckets, he calls them. He says, we, we can say that some scripture expresses God's heart and character and timeless will for human beings. He says that the second bucket, we can say, well, these scriptures expressed God's will in a particular time, but are no longer binding. And then he, there's a third bucket, he says, scriptures that never fully express the heart or character or the will of God. And that's not just something that he made up. There have always been people a lot of people who propose that it's okay to pick and choose what should or shouldn't be in the Bible. President Thomas Jefferson famously used like a knife, an exacto knife, and cut out the parts of the, the gospels that he liked and pasted them all into a new book that he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, which he preferred instead of the Bible. He just took the parts he liked. To do that, though, to separate the scripture into to buckets or to use our knife on it, is to put ourselves above the wisdom of God's people who have always regarded scripture as authoritative for the people of God. The wisdom that considers the Bible authoritative has always been the bedrock of Christianity. There have always been those who disagree, of course, but just to be clear, to abandon the authority of Scripture is to abandon the path that Christianity has been on since the very first century. So if we're not just going to throw this story out and say, well, probably someone made that up, you know, I don't know how that got in there, but we don't really have to pay attention to that. If we're not going to do that, what do we do with this story? Well, we could, as a second alternative, just read it and move on. We do that a lot with Scripture, don't we? We read it and go, huh. And then there's the next story about when someone gets healed. <laughs> Let's go there. But what if we stay on this story for a little while today? What if we wrestle with it? What if like Jacob wrestling with that angel in the Old Testament. We wrestle with it until we see what's redemptive in it. 
Some Bible scholars call stories, parts of the Bible's like, Bible like this, the texts of terror. These stories that, that make us, when we hear them, they, they, they put our teeth and our hearts on edge. Barbara Brown Taylor says that these stories like this one pry our fingers away from our own ideas about who God should be and how God should act. She proposes that we approach this text like this. Our fear of God's method, she says, may turn out to be like our fear of the surgeon's knife, which must wound before it can heal. And while we would prefer to forego the pain altogether, our survival depends on our trust in the surgeon's skill. And she proposes that stories like this one of Ananias and Sapphira challenge us with this question. Do we trust God to act in all the events of our lives or only the ones that meet our approval? Ultimately, this account of Ananias and Sapphira makes us wrestle with this question. Who is God? And who are we? That's really what it comes down to. What does this teach us about who God is? Who is God? And who are we? We've been seeing in in Acts that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that, that comes and dwells in those who give their lives to Christ, the Spirit empowers people. The Spirit makes people bold. The Spirit is a healer. The Spirit is one who forms a community. But we see here something else about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also a refining fire. A refining fire. This is an image we see in the Old Testament often. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, The Lord whom you're seeking will come. But then it goes on to say, But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross, the impurities. He will purify his people, refining them like gold and silver. It's like a refining fire, fire that's so hot it can melt metal. And when metal is melted, all the impurities can can come to the surface and and can be skimmed off and leaving this beautiful, um, pure metal that shines. Fire is powerful stuff, isn't it? As children, we're taught never to play with fire. And yet that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira are doing here. They are playing with fire. Several years ago, there was a huge forest fire in California, north of Los Angeles. It was called the Buckweed Fire. And it spread through high winds and hot, dry weather. And it drove 15,000 people from their homes, destroyed 21 houses and 22 other buildings, injured three people, and burned up more than 38,000 acres. And investigators immediately began tracing the cause of the fire. And the next day, the arson investigators 
from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department talked with a suspect. And uh, the department spokesperson said this, it became known to the investigators that they needed to speak with a young boy. He acknowledged that he was playing with matches and accidentally, his words, set the fire. Playing with fire is serious business. It's dangerous. Sin is seriously dangerous. And it doesn't do any of us any good to forget that. Imagine the damage Ananias and Sapphira could have done to this new community, the beginning of the church, if their deception had been allowed to just grow, to stay there and grow. It's like when you're building a building. If you measure wrong way down in the foundation, everything else is going to get more and more crooked as you grow. It's like a seed that's planted that spreads and grows to establish then and there in that very first beginning of the church that you could, you could lie to the Holy Spirit to establish that it's okay to play with fire. It could have caused so much harm. The Holy Spirit is a refining fire, and it's meant for our good. If we invite the presence and the power of Jesus into our lives, it will not always be easy. It will not always be comfortable. I don't know how many times I've heard that, but I need to hear it over and over again. There's something in our human spirit that just, we just want it to be comfortable, right? We just want it to be easy. But God is not all that interested in our comfort. And that is painful sometimes. There's something in each of us that wants our experience of the Christian life and of church to be all easy and uplifting. And when it's not, we start to get worried, don't we? We start to get anxious. We start to think something is wrong. But maybe we need to submit to God's refining fire. Barbara Brown Taylor tells a story of something that happened to her on vacation one year. She says, several summers ago, I spent three days on a barrier island where loggerhead turtles were laying their eggs. One night, while the tide was out, I watched a huge female heave herself up on the beach and dig her nest and empty her eggs into it. Afraid of disturbing her, I left before she was finished. The next morning, I returned to see if I could find the spot where her eggs lay hidden in the sand. What I found were her tracks leading in the wrong direction. Instead of heading back out to sea, she had wandered into the dunes, which were already as hot as asphalt in the morning sun. A little ways inland, I found her, exhausted, all but baked, her head and flippers caked with dried sand. After pouring water on her and covering her with sea oats, I fetched a park ranger who returned with a jeep to rescue her. He flipped her on her back, strapped tire chains around her front legs, and hooked the chains to a trailer hitch on his jeep. Then I watched, horrified, as he took off, yanking her body forward so that her mouth filled with sand and her neck bent back so far I thought it would break. 
The ranger hauled her over the dunes and onto the beach. At the ocean's edge, he unhooked her and turned her right side up. She lay motionless in the surf as the water lapped at her body, washing sand from her eyes and making her skin shine again. A wave broke over her. She lifted her head slightly, moving her back legs. Other white waves brought her further back to life until one of them made her light enough to find a foothold and push back into the ocean. Watching her swim away and remembering her nightmare ride through the dunes, I reflected that it is sometimes hard to tell whether you are being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. It says twice in this passage that great fear seized all who saw that this had happened, who heard about these events. Great fear seized them. There is such a thing as a healthy fear. I think that's what this is talking about here, a healthy fear. We should have a healthy fear of playing with fire, shouldn't we? My grandparents lived on a farm in Kansas, and they had cattle. And around the area where the cattle were was an electric fence. And I can remember as a small child, maybe six or seven years old, one summer there in Kansas, having been told over and over again, that's an electric fence, don't touch it, walking up to that electric fence and thinking, what did they mean by that, electric fence? I went and looked at it closely. I thought there would be electricity, like, you know, buzzing all along it visibly, but it just looked like wires. <laughs> and I just could not resist just, just touching it to see what they meant by that electric fence. I found out. <laughs> and I never touched that electric fence again. You know, my grandparents were not mean people for having an electric fence there to keep those huge cattle separated from the house and the yard and the garden, to keep small children away from the, the cattle out there. They weren't cruel to have an electric fence. And they weren't cruel to tell me, don't touch it. It was there and it was good that I had a healthy fear of it. We should have a healthy fear of sin, and God would not be a good God if he didn't warn us away from sin. And there is sometimes pain in that warning. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. When it talks about Fearing God, the Bible doesn't mean it like a cringing fear, like a dog that's been hit with a stick cowering in the corner. It doesn't mean that's how we should regard God. John Oswald, the Old Testament scholar, says this, the fear of the Lord is a way of living, a way that is shaped by wholesome awe of the one living God. He goes on to say, it is to shape your life in the knowledge that the creator has made us to live in certain ways, ways that if we follow will result in whole, productive, secure lives. 
By the same token, it's also to know that if we don't live in those ways, we're headed straight for a brick wall, the brick wall of God's unchanging truth. That's why Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To live as if it's okay to play with fire is dangerous. See, God is not all that interested in making us comfortable, but he is interested in making us holy. And that is a great gift. Love without law is not really love. And salvation without holiness is not really salvation. We were made to be holy. The Bible says to us, be holy because God is holy. Holiness is not some kind of strict, engineered life that keeps us from sinning, but it's the art of fully living. Carolyn Moore writes a great blog about the art of holiness. She says, holiness is the pathway to joy with as many expressions as there are people. Holiness is rich, it is life-giving, it is joy-filled. Far from being restrictive and fun-sapping, holiness is the ultimate form of freedom. It calls out the best in us when we live it well to glorify God. As we read this story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's easy to say, well, thank goodness I'm not like them, (laughs) right? Thank goodness, God is not going to need to strike me dead. Thank goodness, my heart is not like theirs. But this account here of Ananias and Sapphira, it invites us to ask, who is God? But it also invites us to ask, who am I? Where am I? Am I playing with fire? It says that what, what they did was that they kept back. They kept back some of the money. When Peter said, is this all of it? They said, yep, this is it. This is it. And I can't help but hear the echoes of so many conversations that I have had with God. God, I give you my whole life. All of it, Kristen? Really? Yep, all of it except for this part I've got hidden in my pocket here that I hope you won't notice, God. All of it. How easy it is to keep back something from God, to say to him, God, you're the Lord of my life, but maybe don't take all my money or all my time or all my energy. Can I keep some of that for myself and not let you have any say over that? We tend to hold back the things that are precious to us, our pride. I don't want to be a fool for Christ. I really don't. Is that what God's calling me to? Or maybe control. Who gets to be in the driver's seat of my life? It's dangerous to play with fire. And God would not be a good God if he didn't tell us that. It says just a few verses after this account of Ananias and Sapphira, what happened in the church as a result of this. 
It says in verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Simon's colonnade. And more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Great fear is used twice in these verses. And the end results were signs and wonders and healing and a great multitude was added to their number. And I wonder, what might happen if we invite God's refining fire, his Holy Spirit, to burn here? Let's pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, refining fire, Grant me your peace, for I have made peace with what does not give peace. Drive me deep now to face myself, so I may see that what I truly need to fear is my capacity to deceive and my willingness to be deceived. My love of things and using of people, my struggle for power, and shrinking of soul, my addiction to comfort, and sedation of conscience, my readiness to criticize, and my reluctance to create, my clamor for privilege, and my silence at injustice, my seeking for security and forsaking the kingdom. Refining fire, burn up the impurities in me. Instill in me such a fear of you as will make me wise and such quiet courage as will enable me to begin to make hope visible, forgiving, delightful, loving, contagious, faith liberating, peacemaking, joyful, and myself open and present to other people and your kingdom. I give myself to you. Amen. Oh,